Welcome to Healing with the Masters. We are so delighted that you've chosen to hang out with us for this series of speakers, inspirational wisdom, powerful affirmations, invocations, activations, prayer, and healing. Healing with the Masters represents transformation to ignite your light and to show you a framework of possibility for moving into a new way of being in your life, modeling that for others in your life, and changing the whole planet. Enjoy this powerful series. Now, if you're interested in joining us live, then just go to hwtmpodcast.com. That stands for Healing with the Masters, hwtmpodcast.com. Register there for the current season. And did I mention? It's free. Join us absolutely free. You just have to register. But for now, enjoy these shows because they created the most amount of transformation. They created the most amount of buzz, insights, and miracles of possibility. These are just as powerful as the day they were recorded. The vibration and energies are still present and available for you. And if you're listening to them, it's because you're ready right now. Know that you helped to create this content. Your desires and intentions have brought this very broadcast here before you. So listen, engage, and enjoy. And again, if you'd like to join us in our live season, remember to go to hwtmpodcast.com. You just have to register. Join us, experience the light, absolutely free. Now enjoy this show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Volume 13 of Healing with the Masters, and welcome to this powerful season. You know, this 2014 set of seasons is unique in that it's our second year of the Aquarian Age, and this is a year of let's gear done. I don't know if you've been feeling that, but so many people have been sharing with us that that seems to be the theme for them as well. This is our soul group opportunity to commit to our journeys, engage in our lives, and in the process and together make a difference on this planet. We are delighted that you chose to hang out with us this season, and I want to remind you that you are beckoning forth all the content on this and every show of this season of Healing with the Masters. Your intentions have brought forth this very moment, so everything is here for you. That's what's so powerful about our Healing with the Masters community. You create the content through your intentions. I also want to remind you that the healing part of our name means transformation and realignment and repatterning. It really means that you are on a pathway to change it all. And we are so excited at what you're about to create. Now, you may think that the Masters are the remarkable speakers that we are bringing on each week, but we know that you are actually the Master you are seeking. All of the answers are within you, and the Master teachers you're hearing on this series are giving you nudges and hints as to who you truly are, that bright, sparkling being of light and love that you are. I'm so glad we've all come together in this beautiful community and together are making a difference on this planet through everything that we're co-creating. So thank you so much for joining us. Now I want to welcome a very, very special guest today to our show. This is someone who I have been um, dreaming of speaking to for years, um, since the beginning of our show. And 
I am so honored now to call him not only a colleague but a friend. Um, Bill Harris is a, a, a powerful teacher and inventor in the field of human development. He is a certified trainer of neurolinguistic programming and is trained in Ericksonian hypnosis. He is a longtime student of contemporary psychology, Eastern philosophy, the physical sciences, the evolution of nonlinear systems, chaos theory, and the effects of a wide range of neurotechnologies on human change, evolution, and healing. He is known for his ability to explain difficult subjects in engaging and easy to understand ways. I've had been a personal, um, I've been, I've sat at his knees as he's done. Well, that actually sounded weird, but we've definitely hung out <laughs> and had wonderful conversations. And I've learned something every time I talk to him. Um, he allows us and helps us to understand um, what this world is, what are the scientists scientific and transformational things that are happening in this world. And he is a regular speaker at these high-end programs around the globe. He has taught a wide range of workshops and seminars, conducted his own private therapy practices, util utilizing cognitive psychology, NLP, and other approaches, and is the president and director of Centerpoint Research Institute. Today, over 1 million people in 193 countries have used Centerpoint programs to improve their lives, and he's become one of the best-known personal growth teachers in the world. You may have seen him on The Secret, um, and he's also uh, a, the creator and inventor of Holosync, which some of you may have heard of, some of you may have owned. Um, he has shared the stage with many of the top business and human potential leaders in the world, including Jack Canfield, Dr. Stephen Covey, which is the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the Dalai Lama, Stuart Emery, he's the co-creator of EST, Ken Wilber, who's the author, philosopher, and creative, creator of Integral Institute, Sir Richard Branson um, of, of Virgin Airlines and Virgin um, of the company that did uh, Virgin Mobile, and many, many others. And uh, he was also, in 2003, invited to present one of his programs at the United Nations. We are so blessed and honored. That's a, it was a long bio, but it was worth it because <laughs> you guys get the idea of how special this person is and how honored we are to welcome him. Welcome, Bill Harris, to Healing with the Masters. Who is this guy you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he sounds amazing. He's amazing. <laughs> well, I'm... I'm I'm really, uh, I'm really touched that you asked me to be a part of this, and I'm really excited about, about talking to all the people that are that are out there, and uh, and I am also really glad that we finally met, and uh, it's been delightful getting to know you. You're doing so many great things for people. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who've gotten involved with you are very lucky that they found you. Oh, thank you, Bill, and I would say the same to you. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, let's see, I think it was 2006, I invested in Holosync back then. And it was, you know, it was a time of tremendous change for me. And I know that it was one of those tools that allowed me to expand in crazy ways. Um, and uh, I thank you for that. So, so let's talk about, you know, you are, I, I mean, we could have seven shows with you no, easily because there are so many topics upon which you can, you can speak to. But one of the things that, that I think um, is really important to understand is this notion that uh, people can't, we get many, many emails from people who say they, they haven't been able to 
seemingly sustain, that they, they read these books, they take course after course, and they, they either never quite get where they want to be, or they get there and plateau for long, long, long stretches of time. So, um, and I know that you understand this from your research and from your background in, in, in creating Holosync, and um, you've also created wonderful programs about success. So, so what's happening there, and, and how can you guide us maybe to overcome this seeming obstacle? That is a huge question. Just a small question to start with. I've been thinking about this for a long time, from uh, the point when uh, uh, somebody that I was working for when I was in my 20s handed me a copy of Think and Grow Rich and said, read this. And in Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill, among many other things, says, keep your mind on what you want and keep it off of what you don't want. And I thought, well, wow, now I, now I know what, what successful people do. And I found out that it was really hard to do, uh, that it, it was easy to do in the areas of your life that were already easy, but in the areas where you really needed it, it was really hard to do. And so I, I you know, began thinking, why is this so hard to do? And is, is everybody else doing it? Or, and I'm just really dumb? Or, or what's the deal? And then I realized after a while that, that it's, these sorts of things are hard for everyone. And, and so, you know, fast forward 35 years or so, I've been through so many things that where I have always had that question in the back of my mind, essentially the question that you were, you were asking me, why even people who know Napoleon Hill's success principles or they've, or they've taken a course on communication skills or how to have a better relationship or, you know, a whole range of things uh, that, that we all want to improve, at least thoughtful-seeking uh, people like the people that are on this call. And, and yet, um, we never quite get to that place where we go, okay, I've got it nailed now. I, everything is is just humming along. <clears throat> so that that's that's a really really great question and I and I wish I had an answer. So what's the next question? You're not getting off that easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I think it is at this point after think really literally I have been thinking about this for 40 years just about <clears throat> and not quite but uh, probably 36 or 7 years. I think that the, that the underlying fundamental that many people lack, most people, almost everybody, in fact, lacks, is what I would call awareness. Awareness uh, is the fundamental that if you have it, um, you are able to do what you intend to do, no matter what it is, whether it's communicate skillfully or be loving to other people or... Um, you know, have your spiritual growth uh, flower or uh, become more prosperous, whatever, whatever it happens to be that you've been reading books about or taking courses about, if you're aware, uh, it's, it's going to be easy to do. Uh, and one of the reasons is the how-to of how to do anything is a Google search away these days. Uh, you know, when I was coming up, you had to go to the library or, or find somebody in person that you could talk to or something. And all those those are still valuable things to do. <clears throat> it's not hard to find out how to do something anymore. It's the getting yourself to do it part. And here's here's why. 
almost everything. Well, let me let me back up and and, and I sort of start off by saying that uh, the key to a well-lived life is choice. The, the The goal is to have more choice, and I finally uh, kind of boiled this down to choice about four different areas of life. How you feel, how you behave, which people and situations you attract or become attracted to, and what meanings you assign to what's going on around you. <clears throat> those four things in life, uh, I don't know if we have time for me to go into this, but those four things in life are the really the only things in life that human beings at least potentially could have a choice about. Almost everything else is not really within your control. I'm sorry, magical thinkers that think you can control the whole universe with your mind, but but um, these four things you have control about. You don't have control about what other people do. You don't have control over the fact that, that everything in this universe is impermanent and it comes into being, passes away eventually, falls apart, ends in some way. You don't have control of the fact that humans have sensitive bodies, they can be hurt, they, they, all that sort of thing. And certainly you don't have control over the sun and the weather and the gravity and all those physical forces. But you do have control over things that you generate. And here's a key point. You generate those four things, but you do it outside your awareness. You do it unconsciously. And because you do it unconsciously, it runs on autopilot. Now, this is a good thing in a way, that all this stuff runs on autopilot, because if you had to think through everything that you do, it would be too much. So you you make generalizations and you learn and uh, I don't have to re meet you every time I come to you or figure out what a door is every time I come to a door I've never opened before and you know all kinds of other things there's just all kinds of stuff that runs on autopilot but when we're traumatized by life while we're growing up especially and that doesn't have to be being chained to the radiator in the basement or something like that it it's it you know being disappointed by life not being paid enough attention. Uh, maybe your mother is uh, distracted someday, and you come home with uh, something you made at school, and, and you show it to her, and she's so worried about something else that she doesn't go, oh, that's wonderful, and really engage you on it. And, and you conclude, not knowing how to evaluate these things, uh, you conclude that, well, I'm really not that important, or I'm what I made isn't very good. And, and so, you know, we all accumulate these little traumas, and sometimes big ones too. And the part, the parts of life that have been traumatized in this way, the way they run on autopilot is dysfunctional, and it creates outcomes that that we don't want. And then we end up um, having our feelings run on autopilot, but a lot of them are bad and uh, non-resourceful feelings, or our behaviors are on autopilot, so that we can't take action even when we want to and intend to instead we're procrastinating or getting scared to act or 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 quitting uh, at the slightest uh, setback and so mm-hmm. on or we're getting attracted to or attracting people that are not good for us but we keep doing it oh even my though gosh. we can see that we do it bill this is just and then finally assigning meanings to 
to everything. Right, right. So, so I'll, let you, I'll let you talk. Uh, I keep, yeah, no, I this is go good because I want to go in deeper into each of these. But this is one of the most remarkable uh, assessments and, and very well articulated that I've ever heard, which is um, there's this notion that we are in autopilot and that the autopilot um, in most instances in a very healthy way is really, really good for us because because it's not like we're facing brand new things every second because we're, we're retaining this information, but we're also retaining trauma. And that even these little traumas build up and they become, I'm going to paraphrase here, dysfunctional autopilots that start creating things in our life that are a reflection of the dysfunction. Is, is that kind of it? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what happens. If, if you... If you have some failures, which we all do mm-hmm. all the time, yep. you have, you're a little child and you have some failures, and then maybe uh, someone in your family, either intentionally or unintentionally, says something that makes you feel ashamed of it, pretty soon you think, okay, trying something new right. uh, and you know, trying something that, I, that is a little outside the box or that might be a challenge is a bad idea because the feeling I get uh, if there's a failure, you, you know, you keep pulling back into the present that feeling that you had when you were a little tiny three years old uh completely dependent completely uh you know you you don't have the strength of an adult and now you keep reliving that feeling every time so you just say okay i'm not trying anything new uh, I, don't, I don't i can't be successful yeah and we and we create so, these wild conclusions so but what you said at the beginning is that choice is the key to a well-lived life so these four areas, how, I f- how you feel, uh, um, how I behave, um, how people in situations attract, uh, how we're attracted to them, and the meanings we assign, are, are these like the, the, the points of choice that we can make a change in? The reason you can have a choice about those four areas is because they are generated inside of you. Now, like what everybody else does is not generated inside of you. There are people that have enough magical thinking in their head that they think that they are, you know, that how somebody else behaves is because of them. I mean, you can influence how somebody else behaves. I'm not saying that, but, but you know, some people think uh, something bad happened and it happened because of uh, the way they were thinking. Right. Uh, I mean, it's possible that you thought something and then you behaved in a certain way and you got attracted to certain things and you made it happen in that way. But So at any rate, these four things are could be a choice. There's two criteria for having a choice. It has to be something that is being generated by you. And we can talk in a second about how we generate those things. And the second thing is um, that it, you have to have enough awareness that you can observe as you do it how you generate those things, also seeing the consequences as as they happen. So you, it needs to be something you create, and it needs to be something you can you you have to be able to watch it with awareness. And the problem is that that hardly anybody has this kind of awareness. Uh, in fact, the kind of awareness I'm talking about is the kind of awareness that somebody has after maybe. 30 years of meditating four hours a day or something like that. It's not something that very many people have unless they've really devoted their life to gaining that kind of awareness. In fact, that's the big drawback to this whole thing is that is that up until uh, now, uh, it's always been difficult 
quite a quite a long learning curve to create that kind of awareness so that you can observe yourself creating how you feel, how you behave, which people in situations you attract or become attracted to, and what things seem to mean to you. I'm sure most people listening know that nothing out there really means anything, that human beings assign meaning to everything. That's part of our our creativity as a human being is that you get to you get to decide what what meanings uh, what things mean but if you're doing it outside your awareness it seems like the things really do mean that but this is why uh, uh, two people could be in the same situation one of them thinks it means wow I'm uh, I, I I'm just completely uh, unlovable and the other person thinks it means something completely different because the meaning is assigned from outside; it's not intrinsic. Right. It's the. It's like the 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 blind the various blind people trying to describe the elephant what it is as a whole. <laughs> we all have this yeah. little piece of our universe that we are describing things, and as you're saying, it's also based on past traumas that have have put a bit of a filter over our eyes as to what really truly is real and running in the unconscious now. Oh my God, we're a mess, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, not completely. Uh, and luckily, there's something you can do about it too. Uh, and it's one of the most fascinating things you can do because what you're doing is you're 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 really finding the real you. And so, my my first principle is kind of it's awareness creates choice. To the degree you're aware about how you're creating something, it becomes a choice. And I mean, you know, imagine what it's like if if how you feel becomes a choice, and it doesn't just all these bad feelings don't just happen to you out of the blue, and you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, most people, the idea that that they somehow created that feeling, you know, it's in response to something. Certainly, there's a trigger, an outside trigger, but but the actual uh, feeling is being created uh, internally. And if you can watch how you do that, you see it becomes a choice. Same thing with if you could uh, have a choice about how you behave, which means you would no longer behave in ways you later regret, or you wouldn't uh, fail to behave when you you wanted to. You know, how many people set these goals about what they want to do, and then they don't, don't do it? Or they do it for a little while, and then they quit. I mean, we've all been there and done that. Uh, and... Uh, Awareness is really what drives your ability to easily do that stuff, and everybody probably can think of people they've the certain kind of people they've been attracted to uh, unconsciously over and over, and then they thought, "Oh God, not this person again in a different body um, and then of course, the thing about meaning so we all are making sense of the world and navigating our way through the world all day long all the time by running in our mind a, a, a fairly complicated system of internal cognitive processes. And those internal cognitive processes, to put it simply, create how you feel, how you behave, and those, you know, those four things. <clears throat> um, the simplest unit of that would be the internal representation. If I ask everybody that's listening, do, do you eat breakfast? Uh, I'll ask you, Jennifer. Do you eat breakfast? Yes, I do. What What, what did you have for breakfast? This morning I had uh, uh, peaches and bananas. Uh huh. So you probably made a picture in your mind, even though it may have been fleeting, of of 
Yeah, I was right in my you mind know, and a little bit in my taste buds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it can involve other senses, too. But So you made a visual internal representation, and it sounds like you may also made a gustatory, what we would call a gustatory internal representation. And um, there are you know internal representations that we make all day long that... Um, that create our feelings and those those other things. So, if you thought about something that you really detest uh, or something that really bothers you, in order to think about it, you have to. Uh, you, you might be saying words in your head, which is one kind of internal representation. But but you're probably making pictures of it. Most people, though, you see, are not are not aware of these internal representations. If we had time, I could take everybody through a little exercise where I had them focus on and really involve themselves internally in something they really don't want or want to avoid, and then we could switch it to something that you really like and love, uh, uh, you know, something that you want, uh, something that makes you feel good, and you can see very easily that these internal representations directly create how you feel. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is that all this stuff is going on on automatic. Mm. Now, the, these internal representations, I'm kind of buzzing through this really fast because we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, and it, I could go on for 70 hours because <laughs> I've, already, I've already recorded it in a course. But uh, <clears throat> in, w- w- people in uh, personal growth circles talk about what you believe a lot. Beliefs are collections of internal representations right. that are about something you think is true. And uh, values, which is what's important to you, what you, what you want to spend time uh, on, what you use to evaluate what you're doing or what other people are doing, which are an extremely important part of this, what I would call your internal map of reality, this collection of internal cognitive processes. Uh, values are collections of internal representations about something that's important to you. And then we we have internal strategies, which is our, our sequences of internal representations. We have a huge number of filters that we run automatically that cause us to delete everything but a certain aspect of what we're looking at. When you walk into the room and walk over to see somebody that's on the other side of the room, you probably aren't aware of your clothes touching your body, a little sounds in the room, uh, how it the weight of your feet on the floor. There's all kinds of stuff we just that's happening. We just delete. And and if somebody says something and it doesn't correspond with what you believe, you delete part of what they said. And you don't hear the nuance of part of it that somebody else might think if they had different beliefs. So there's all these filters. And it's, you know, without going into a lot of detail on this, because it's, it's quite complex, but, but it's possible, if you have enough awareness to do it, to learn to observe these processes, to take them one at a time and practice watching them so that you, when you see yourself dysfunctionally, a dysfunctional way to make internal representations is to f- make internal representations of what you don't want. This was the Napoleon Hill question that I had to begin with. This was sort of my answer to that question. Why is it hard for me to focus on what I want in certain areas of my life? Everybody knows probably that's listening to this call, that, that what, you, what you focus on, repeatedly at least, determines what happens in your life. So if you focus on what you don't want, you end up getting what you don't want, plus you get this extra bonus that you feel lousy, you 
create bad feelings <laughs> Extra bonus. by doing that. Whereas <laughs> if you focus on what you want and what's possible, you feel good, and you uh, you tend to uh, it you know, changes your behavior, so you go out and figure out how to how to get it and begin to attract the kinds of people and situations that will help you get it. You begin to assign the kinds of meanings that will help you to get it. As long as all this stuff is just happening on autopilot, it will just go along doing its autopilot thing based on how it was set up to do it when you were too little to really be able to evaluate how to set it up. So um, so what I do is I teach people how to observe each of these things so that begin to see where you're sabotaging yourself. And I said the first principle is awareness creates choice. The second principle is even cooler, I think. And that is that once you have a choice, you will always choose what serves you. You just can't keep doing something that doesn't serve you and do it with awareness. Isn't that cool? That's so cool, uh, and, I, and I, I've experienced it myself. I mean, this is a, a significant shift that happens, that we start to choose what serves us. Exactly, and, and by the way, you also, uh, a, a more advanced uh, degree of that is the, that it's not just what serves you, but what serves everybody else, too. So you, you stop doing the things that uh, you're doing that are more selfish, you could say, or that, that are at odds with other people. You begin to take everyone else's perspective into account <clears throat> along with your own. So the problem with what I just said now is that it takes a lot of awareness to do this. It takes a lot of awareness to do this. Most people, uh, these internal representations and the things that they build, like internal strategies, beliefs, uh, values, and so on, uh, are go by very quickly, and there's lots of them, and it's it's sort of like learning to play the piano in a sense, to learn how to observe them, and it's not like you have to observe them all the time. It's kind of you go through a process with them, sort of like learning to drive a car, because when you first drive a car, you have to think about every little thing. Okay, oh God, I have to. I'm coming up to the stop sign. Uh, I have to. Uh, let's see. I have to put my foot on the. Oh God, I have to turn. I have to change lanes too. And then you've got to think about everything you do. With, you know, you have to think of every move. But after a while, you get it on. Um, it becomes unconscious competence. And now people drive the car and listen to the radio and talk to somebody and eat their lunch and put on their makeup all at the same time. You know, no sweat. <clears throat> So watching this stuff is kind of like that. But I found that it's very difficult to do if you don't have much awareness. So then I asked, who has this kind of awareness? And it turns out that the people who have meditated for decades have this kind of awareness. <clears throat> Jennifer, do you remember when um, the news came out, I think it was in 2005, that Richie Davidson, a scientist at the University of Wisconsin, he had scanned the brains of these uh, Tibetan Buddhist monks. Mm -hmm. He Remember? found, he found well, the happiest man in the world. <laughs> well, R Ricard, uh, let's see, what's his, Mathieu Ricard is his name, and he's a Frenchman. And uh, based on his brain scans, they said he was likely to be the happiest man in the world. Whether he is or not, I don't know. But, but, <clears throat> but he's probably in the short list of happiest people in the world. 
And he had done, they said, 50,000 hours of meditation. And so I said, okay, how much did he have to do? To... Now, I don't know how many years he did that over, but I picked a long time. Uh, uh, to. So I said, what if he did this over 30 years? How much would he have had to meditate? And w- without going through the whole, all the math, uh, it ended up being four hours and 34 minutes a day, day in and day out, for 30 years. Wow. And, uh, you know, so I said, okay, well, that's, that doesn't sound like uh, a magic bullet or anything, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, he didn't have to wait for 30 years, I'm sure, to get, get results. But, you know, the, the, the point is that there's a giant commitment to get that kind of awareness and do it in the traditional way. Now, there were, there were some of those monks had meditated. They were, they were younger, and they had meditated for about 10,000 hours. So uh, that ended up being about 90 minutes, 90-some minutes, a day for 30 years. And still, I mean, who does that? The thing is, we all know meditation is good for you. In fact, if you knew what I knew, I don't mean you, Jennifer, but just everybody listening, if you knew what I knew about all the research that's been done in meditation and all the benefits they've found and all the things they've found that it does to change your brain that essentially makes you more aware, uh, you know, you'd think, well, why isn't everybody meditating? But it's 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 a long learning curve. It takes quite a while to get any kind of significant results. And people, everybody's busy and has all this stuff to do. And, and, you know, you don't want to miss Breaking Bad, although that's over now. But, <clears throat> you know, there's all this stuff to do and uh, in your life and take the kids to ballet practice and on and on. Who has time to do that? And if you want to devote your life to it and become a monk, then you could probably do it. But not very many people... Uh, even those who know the benefits uh, are able to stick to a meditation practice. And so, you know, I was a very disciplined meditator for many, many years. And uh, I'd been meditating for 16 years and probably averaging a couple hours a day. Uh, which I had You're to halfway there. Quite, I had to be unemployed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's halfway there, but that's quarter of the way there. <laughs> Because because it was half right right half time, of the time right. and 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 <laughs> half as long, and I uh, I wasn't studying under the Dalai Lama either. But at any rate, uh, about that time, it was in my mid thirties. It was in nineteen eighty five. I ran across two pieces. I think I knew about the first piece of uh, research already, which was the Menninger Clinic and the TM movement, the Transcendental Meditation Movement. They had. Uh, looked at the brainwave patterns that meditators were making. And so everybody knew what those brainwave patterns were uh, in, you know, by the 70s. And we could go into each of them and all the wonderful things that happens when you can make more of them. They all kind of boil down to increased awareness, which translates into more creativity, better learning ability, uh, clearer mind, uh, less reactivity, less anxiety, less, less depression, less confusion, uh, less anger, um, you know, more inner peace, more happiness, uh, plus all the health benefits and all that sort of stuff. But, um, and then the Menninger Clinic had also done uh, some actually more sophisticated research even than the TM people. So they knew what, what, what people were doing in their brain when they were meditating quite a while ago. Then I ran across this piece of rather obscure research, which was not about meditation, 
In fact, it had no, uh, it was such pure research that there was, the guy that wrote it, his name was Dr. Gerald Oster, he was a researcher at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. He didn't even say anything in this, in this uh, paper about what it might be useful for. But he was describing a way, uh, or a characteristic of the brain, you might say, that when you presented the brain with certain combinations of pure sine wave tones uh, delivered through headphones so that you could target some of them to one, the left side of the brain and some of them to the right side of the brain, there were these two little organelles in the brain called the olivary nuclei that communicated with each other, created new neural pathways from the left and right to hemispheres of the, of the brain, and it, you could use that, the long and short of it is, to change uh, people's brainwave patterns. So I'm um, sitting there reading this thinking, wow, I already know what the brainwave patterns of meditation are. Could I use this to change people's brainwave patterns, or change my own brainwave patterns, to those of meditation? So I went and got a bunch of equipment that I didn't know how to operate, and uh, bought a few things and so on, and began to experiment with this. And I remember the first time that uh, I and two other friends, I'd made a cassette tape with these sounds on it. It was it was before CDs, and uh, we were listening to this thing for a half hour, and we were sitting kind of facing each other cross-legged, and we opened our eyes at the end when the tape ended and looked at each other for, you know, half a minute or something, and then somebody said, are you feeling what I'm feeling? <laughs> I mean, it, we were just kind of blown away because we'd just been transported to this really deep uh, meditation, and we were feeling high on all these wonderful neurochemicals that you make when you go that deep. And uh, we were just blown away by this. And and although the actual meditation experience was a mind-blower, what really got us was as we did this over time, see, I had been, uh, despite all the meditation, I was a very angry person. I was depressed a lot when I wasn't angry. I had burned many bridges with people. Uh, I was very difficult to get along with, and I had very little going on in the world. I wasn't making hardly any money. I had no career. I had no career prospects. I was, you know, I, I was, uh, I, has, I hesitate to say I was a loser, but I kind of was uh, at that time. <clears throat> but as I used this, as the weeks and months went by, the anger began to dissipate, and I stopped being angry, and uh, somebody would that I had always triggered me would do whatever they did repeatedly to trigger me, and I would say, "Wow, that had no effect on me." Wow. <laughs> and, I w- and I would, and I would actually feel compassion for them that that they were, you know, involved in this little game of trying to get my goat. And uh, you know, all these things began to change for me, and all this emotional garbage they had, which was a lot of it, uh, just began to kind of drain out of me, and my mind became clearer, and I was. I was a musician, and my music became more creative, and and, uh, all these things happened. And then finally, four years later, somebody said, you know, by that time, uh, we had about 150 or so people all over the United States and and a bunch in Europe who just informally were using this. And finally, uh, some of them said, you should really create a structured way to use this and sell it, make, get a, a product. So I started this little company 
on my kitchen table with borrowed recording equipment, not knowing anything about running a business, and I started selling this, and I made a pile of money the first year, $12,000. The second year wasn't that much better. It was forty-eight thousand dollars. But gradually, I learned how uh, I learned how to uh, to run a business, and I learned about marketing and uh, you know how to get new customers and this sort of thing. And as you know, Jennifer, this at a certain point it really began to sweep the world, literally. And that's when I started getting asked to be part of Jack Canfield's. Transformational Leadership Council, and I got asked to speak at the United Nations, and and uh, you know be on stage with the Dalai Lama, and all these other, all these other things that I never in a million years would have thought would have happened to me because I was actually, uh, for the first part of my life, very repellent. Nobody would have asked me; <laughs> they would have asked the Dalai Lama to please do something about me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, so so at any rate, you know, a ho- ho- holosync, which is what we call this this technology, just became a really big deal. And then uh, about the same time that I started Centerpoint Research Institute, which in 1989, I also started to learn about this cognitive psychology stuff about the internal representations and beliefs and internal strategies and all these filters and all this stuff, which I call collectively your internal map of reality. And um, over the years, I began to see how... uh, the two went together. In fact, my elevator speech, you know, an elevator speech is yeah. like what you do what you do that you can tell that's so succinct you can say it during a short elevator. I, if people ask me what do, what do I do at a party or something, I'll say, well, I have this amazing audio technology that creates tremendous amounts of awareness by changing the brain. And then I show people where to direct that awareness so that they, they can get the maximum amount of choice about how they feel, how they behave, which people and situations they attract or become attracted to, and, and what meanings they assign uh, to what's happening around them. The, the four things that you... glassy-eyed look and say, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so, the, so you, you're basically helping the awareness on the four things that you mentioned earlier, so that we can shower awareness on those four things that really can change your life. Yes, wow. and it's quite amazing. You know, when, when you've been trying to use willpower forever, for instance, to eat the kind of diet you want to eat or to get yourself to exercise every day or whatever it is. I mean, there's, you know, there's these, these small but extremely important aspects of having a really balanced, healthy lifestyle. A lot of those things people have a lot of trouble doing because what generates the motivation or lack of motivation, the behaviors and the feelings that generate the behavior, all that is operating outside your awareness. But when you, mm. even without me showing somebody where to direct the awareness, even without that, I, you know, I, I, it was a while before I began teaching that. And the people that the early Holosync users in the early 90s, they all on their own, they would notice uh, how they were generating being angry or reactive or or procrastinating or not acting or whatever whatever it was they would people just start as you become aware you just start to notice this stuff mm. so you 're sitting there having this thirty thousand foot uh, perspective on yourself a, a higher spot on the mountain that you 're watching yourself 
of what you're doing inside, but also then your interactions with others and all this stuff. And as you begin to notice this stuff, with this kind of awareness that ordinarily you would associate with, uh, you know, Grasshopper on the Kung Fu show or, or, <laughs> you know, or, or these Tibetan Buddhist monks or something, you know, you, you're noticing things that, um, that most human beings don't notice. And as you notice them, they become a choice. And stuff falls away and gets corrected that you have been trying forever to do something about. And then the other thing that happens is that, you know, all, you know I'm, I have to say I'm a serial book, seminar, workshop junkie, just like probably most of the people that are <clears throat> listening. And, and those things are fun in, them, all in and of themselves. But I, I definitely went through a period where I was going, God, I keep going to these things, and they sound so great while I'm there. And then when I get and I try to implement them, it turns out to be a lot harder than it seemed like it was going to be, and I and I keep getting in my own way, or you know I, I I know what to do and then I don't do it, or I do it for a while and then I lose interest, or I something happens and I quit or whatever. When you become more aware, you um, the implementing the how-to is just like painting by numbers because you easily see all the ways you're getting in your own way. And sometimes you see something even more fundamental than that. You see, God, uh, I mean, this has to do with values. You see, my God, I'm sitting here trying to do what my parents think I should do or what somebody else thinks I should do, what my husband or my wife thinks I should do. And, I'm, and you suddenly realize what you really want to do, which you weren't noticing that you were acting out what somebody else wanted you to do all that time. But with, with awareness, you see that, and it just becomes impossible to keep doing that because it doesn't serve you to try to be what somebody else wants you to be. What serves you is to be you. And uh, so all these things that, you know, I mean, you could go down this checklist of everything that all the personal growth teachers talk about, you know, which are really a reflection of they know that there's people out there that want help with these things. And I'm not saying that what they're saying isn't isn't help. All the, the how-to stuff that people tell people and all the philosophy behind it is valuable. But And, and adds to the awareness, too. Outside your awareness, mm-hmm. sabotaging yourself, yep. it won't matter. Yeah, it's that, I love that, it's that dysfunctional autopilot that got set up through these traumas. And um, right. and the mind can't necessarily uh, go after them. The mind doesn't have that capacity. Uh, but the the things that get unleashed in the brain uh, through meditation do. So so what what happens? I mean, I'd love to find out a little bit more about about things like uh, how does neuroplasticity. Uh, I'm not saying that right. Neuroplasticity. How does that tie in here? <laughs> say that three times fast, and we'll see if now, you're you good see, at holosync. Because, <laughs> because your brain, your because your brain is plastic, Jennifer. If you practiced saying neuroplasticity, after a while, your brain would turn over more brain real estate right. to saying it, and you'd get really good at it. And you could <laughs> cool. also say, you know, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck? If you know, and all those things, and you could you know, be the life of the party. You know, I uh, I read a, a a great book a while back called The Brain That Changes Itself, and it's by a, a, a guy who's a professor at uh, Columbia and at the University of Toronto named Norman Deutsch. And then out of the blue, Norman Deutsch contacted me be- 
because he'd heard about Holosync. And as I do very often with people, cool people like that that I run into, I say, can I interview you? And uh, and so I interviewed him and and got to know him a bit and uh, and learned quite a bit from him. And he said something to be very startling about neuroplasticity. First of all, for those who don't know what it is, which is probably everybody does, but but neuroplasticity is something that they didn't realize a quality the brain has for quite a while. They thought that your brain was set at, after a certain age and that things could not really change unless they changed for the worse. Uh, but that turns out to not be true. Uh, any uh, stimulus, thought, movement, uh, any kind of stimul- stimulation you give the, uh, the brain repeatedly, the brain, as I just said a moment ago, sort of in jest about saying neuroplasticity, it turns over more neurons, more real estate, to doing it. They took uh, monkeys, and they, unfortunately for the monkeys, they kind of set up this thing that forced these monkeys to tap on something over and over and over and over, and then they killed them and looked at their brains, and they and they found out that uh, that a huge portion of the brain that that is involved in uh, hand-eye coordination and movement had been turned over to um, to doing this tapping, and. Uh, that was one of the first experiments where they began to realize that the brain can change in response to things like that. So uh, when you, for instance, listen to Holosync or meditate in a traditional way repeatedly, you are giving a stimulus to the brain that creates certain changes in the brain. Um, another thing that uh, I learned from uh, Dr. Deutsch that I thought was really interesting he said that, and he gave me this really interesting metaphor that I think people will find uh, useful. He, he said that all the things that you don't like, your bad habits, your auto, that, this autopilot stuff that is dysfunctional, all that stuff was created by neuroplasticity, too. Really? We don't usually think of it that way. Wow. We think about it as, well, we, we can change and make positive changes, but the negative things were created, you know, what we, that's a meaning, you see, that we're assigning, that they're negative. But right. uh, the things that create uh, uh, outcomes we don't want are, uh, were also created by neuroplasticity. He said neuroplasticity is sort of like a ski slope where there's virgin snow and nobody has skied on it. That's kind of how your brain is in the, in the beginning when you're a baby. And what happens is the first skiers go down the hill, and they can kind of go wherever they want, as long as they avoid rocks and trees and stuff like that. And they can sort of make their own paths, but the people that come after them are more and more likely to go in the same trails that they've created. And in fact, once you get in those ruts, it's hard for you to ski out of them. Uh, anybody that skied would know this. I, I'm actually not a skier, but but makes sense to me. At any rate, the brain is the same way. So you have these experiences when you're growing up, some of which are very good, but some of which are saying to you, or you're concluding, this is a part of life that is potentially dangerous, and I have to watch out for whatever it is, authority figures, uh, being the center of attention, uh, making a mistake, or, you know, we could list hundreds of things. But so... Uh, those all create these these grooves, these ruts, these pathways, these these neural pathways in the brain, and once they're created, they're hard to get out of. And uh, what makes it easier to get out of them, of course, is 
awareness. The more aware you're, you, you can, you, the more you can make your brain more aware, uh, the, the easier it is to get out of this stuff. I mean, if you take the, the you know, the most unaware people that are, have no interest in personal growth, no interest in change, they don't want to take any responsibility that they're creating their behavior, or, you know, their outbursts or whatever. It's everybody else's fault and all that kind of stuff. They don't, they don't even, they're not even the slightest bit interested in this. They're not thinking about it. Um, they're in those ruts, and as far as they know, that's where they should be. And if, and if the rut is creating something bad, it's everybody else's fault or the fault of society or the environment or something. But the people that are listening to, you know, a show like yours are among the, the, the more aware people in the world and the more thoughtful people in the world. And so we look at this stuff and we say, well, I don't want to be doing these dysfunctional things. I don't want to be unintentionally being reactive to people and unkind to people. And I certainly want to be more prosperous and I want to, I want to feel better. I want to behave, uh, take, you know, take the actions I want to take and be a choice about not taking the actions that I shouldn't or don't want to take. And so, you know, we're all busy doing all these things that do trigger neuroplasticity. The problem is that as long as those ruts are unconscious, um, we can begin to try to create new ones. But here, here's a good example of how these ruts grab you. Um, if you told me an area of your life, Jennifer, that was not working the way you want, and, and then I said, uh, well, okay, well, what you need to do is say affirmations about that. You need to, to, uh, to start making these new positive connections in your brain about that. So there you're saying, you know, I will only eat the foods that make me healthier, whatever it is, you know, something. Uh, uh, I only eat licorice. I only eat licorice. Oh, wait, no, that's, that's different. <laughs> no, no, that's what you've been saying. <laughs> actually, licorice, real licorice, is actually can be very good for you. Yeah, it's good for the adrenals. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, somebody tells you to think positively about something. And so here you are going, I'm thinking positive, I'm thinking positive. You're saying whatever the positive thing is. And then it occurs to you why you're thinking positive. I'm thinking positive because, I, A, I don't want to think negative, and I don't want to think negative because there's this thing that's a potential danger that I'm trying to avoid. And there you are back in the same rut. Right. Your attention went from thinking positively. Just thinking positively reminds you of, of the, the problem that caused you to want to think positively. So, in other words, you're using willpower to stay out of that rut, and it doesn't work. So you know what I tell people, Jennifer? I do not tell people to think positively. I tell them if they're if you're thinking negatively about something, think negatively about it, but do it with awareness. There's the there's you the think key. negatively with awareness. Yep. You watch yourself thinking negatively. You watch yourself making internal representations of this danger that you don't want. Right. You know, let's say uh, you don't want an, the authority figure in your life to yell at you and make you just feel like a, a, a powerless three-year-old, because that is kind of what happens. And so uh, you're, you're, you start saying positive things about, you know, not whatever the positive affirmation would be about that. And then here you are going back into it. So I say, okay, well, just watch yourself make internal representations, which could be what you say to yourself, could be pictures, and it could be sights, sounds, uh, feelings, all that stuff. They're all internal representations. You're watching yourself do that with awareness. As you do that, you, 
easily see how the internal representations you're making are causing these really crappy feelings and causing you to feel motivated to act in a way that might mm. not be resourceful. This is so cool. And, uh, and if you do it enough, you begin to see, God, I actually get unconsciously attracted to authority figures well. who are going to trigger this. Uh, I, and, I, I love uh, this. And point. I actually get, I give off social cues that cause authority <laughs> figures who are d- abusive to spot me as a potential prey, and and they get attracted to me. And there's the dance. And then you, and then you see yourself doing all these, all the adding all these meanings to what happening, mm. what's happening. You know, the authority figure may be getting uh, mad, not because of what you think, but he's getting mad because something terrible has happened to him. Uh, you know Mary Morrissey, don't you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mary once said to me that she had been in the supermarket and uh, the checkout woman, you know, the clerk ringing up the, the, the stuff, was uh, just a total bitch. And uh, while she was walking out, she was just kind of ranting about what a bitch this woman was to the kid that was carrying her bags out for her and yeah. and he said well you know her son was killed in a car accident about six days ago and uh, she's been like that ever since and then suddenly she felt compassion for the person but you know the meaning she assigned to it was completely different than yes. what was really happening so we do that all the time and at any rate when you see yourself doing this in other words when you think negative light like this when you think about the danger you're trying to avoid which is what people are really doing when they think negatively, then you just can't keep doing it. It just it, it it isn't like you, you know, make this willpower decision like this is ridiculous. I don't want to do it. It just it just kind of kind of drains out of you, and you just can't do it. And not only that, I mean, I said the the first principle is awareness creates choice. The second principle is once you have a choice, you'll always choose what serves you. You don't even need to figure out what serves you. There is a part of you that knows exactly what serves you. So in a, in a kind of roundabout way, if you want to know what serves you, watch with awareness because uh, if, it's not, if it doesn't serve you, you won't be able to do it or feel it or behave in that way. Uh, it, it, it makes things so easy. Now, you still have all this stuff going on that I mentioned a while back, that you have no choice about. You don't have a choice, except you have some influence, but you don't have a choice about all the stuff other people do. You don't have a choice about all these other things, you know, the the, the way the world is set up, that your body is sensitive, on and on and on. And so, however, when you have enough awareness, your response to those things, because sometimes those things put you in a situation where you're not getting what you want. And it's, it's an unavoidable part of life. This is why Buddha said his first noble truth was all life is suffering. He didn't mean everything in life is suffering. He just meant that suffering is built into life, and there's some of it you can't do anything about. So the part you have choice about are the, is self-created suffering. And then there's the this, this stuff that you can't do anything about. You can't do anything about that the people you love that are older than you will probably die before you do, and you'll probably suffer over it unless you're a sociopath. Right. Uh, so, you know, who, who can't, who is disconnected from any kind of human feelings. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, 
please tell me this makes lots of sense, Jennifer. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, Bill, like this is this is like one of the best um, of uh, articulated ways of really cognitively and yet also in the heartfelt way understanding who we are, our responsibility, and how we can bring simple active awareness to change it. I mean, the, the way that you described that was, um, was just really transformational to me, which is, well, you know... Uh, I could go into a lot of detail on each of these parts. I know you right? could. And, and, and watching, but watching, um, in, instead of doing an affirmation to suppress or repress, which is, I often think, how people get confused with affirmations, that they actually create a repression and a suppression. Instead, bringing awareness to what you're actually experiencing. And then through that, that through conscious that awareness, it all sorts itself out. All starts sorting itself out. It's just, it's like a little miracle. And, and the other thing that, that I've noticed that is happening on the planet in, in the, you know, seven years that we've been doing this and the literally um, four or 500 guests that we've interviewed, we've discovered that there is content coming onto this planet. You, you discovered, you're one of the early ones. And that there's this content coming onto the planet that is allowing us to leapfrog, that is allowing us to do in minutes and days and hours what it took um, years and decades and centuries to do before. <laughs> and and that's, that's right. the technology that you've created is, is creating exactly that paradigm. And we have other speakers that are doing similar things that are creating this remarkable um, um, technology of energy from from my perspective that's what it is a vibration um, that is creating a change in our field that we're we're able to actually manage now that we might not have been able to manage in the 50s <laughs> or the 20s or the 19th 18th century but right now Absolutely. we have because we can google search any of this right now anyone could take anything you said any of those papers that you described any of those authors that you talked about they can google and buy them and get them right now online and maybe even youtube a bunch of videos on this stuff um and so it, it's just a remarkable time and i'm 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 so uh, i feel so blessed that we're able to share you with our audience finally um, and sharing this remarkable tool that is uh, that that it's another easy button <laughs> that we have the capacity. Well, I, know, I know we, I know we're almost done, but I, I want to throw in one other. Oh, please, thing. please do, please oh, do. And it'll just be a, a couple of sentences because I know we're sure. running out of time. The one thing we didn't really talk about is the spiritual realm. Okay. And awareness certainly applies to that, too. In fact, that's where, what people think of when they think of awareness. They think, I want to be aware of oneness and all this kind of stuff. The truth is what people actually have to go through to get to that point is aware of all the stuff they've disowned and made wrong and uh, you know, all the stuff that, that they were taught to avoid, not focus on, uh, that's not okay, inappropriate, blah, blah, blah. And that's the stuff that tends to come up when people meditated first. But at any rate, there's a whole bunch of that I could go into. We don't have time to do it. But there, there are certain sort of basic principles, uh, I guess you could say. These are almost, uh, this is more scientific stuff in, in a sense, just about the universe, the, uh, the, way, the way that it's constructed and the way that it works. And almost all human beings are, are fighting some of these basic ways that the universe is set up. And uh, 
when you're fighting it, it makes you feel a lot of angst about being a human being, and uh, you don't feel comfortable in your own skin. You, you, you feel at odds with the world. You feel separate. But when you have enough awareness, you see how the universe flows along, and then you kind of flow with it. I wish I had more time to go into this, because it sounds a little airy-fairy with the way I'm saying it, because I don't have time to give... Uh, I don't know. How much time do we have, Jennifer? Uh, we have... Um, we're already two minutes over, but it's okay. Um, just okay. Uh, g- give give us another five minutes, and we're going to run just a little bit over, and that's totally oh, fine. Okay. Here, here's one, one aspect of it. There's a little game that everybody, a human being, is taught as soon as they're old enough to learn the rules. And um, Alan Watts called it uh, the game of black and white. And the main rule of the, I mean, to play the game of black and white, first of all, you have to take all the stuff that's really all connected and separate it into separate things. And so people t- teach their children, this is a ball, this is, uh, you know, oatmeal, this is a cat, this is so all these separate things. So you begin to get this, uh, this vision of the, everything of being, okay, there's a bunch of separate stuff, and it all moves around and uh, interacts with each other, but it, it's all separate. And then once you know that there are separate things, then you divide them into two piles. The black pile, which is all the inappropriate, bad, negative, the stuff you don't want, and so on. And then, and then you divide uh, the other pile is you know, all the stuff you do want, the appropriate, the good, the, the, the spiritual, the whatever. And then you play this game where you say, I must have all the white pile stuff and not the black pile stuff. And that saying that is sort of like saying, I want to have buying without selling, or I want to have a coin with one side, right. with just heads and not tails, because there's no such thing as up without down. There's no, in fact, the, the appropriate things are only appropriate in, in, in response to the things that aren't appropriate. So when people, tr- the, see, one of the, the, the main rules of the universe is that everything goes together. It's one flowing uh, thing. And uh, so when you divide it up like that and then play like, I have to have just this part and we've got to get rid of this other stuff, then you are f- swimming against the stream of the universe and it causes incredible stress and angst and, and so on. So there, there are several things like this, double binds that human beings put themselves in um, that because you how many, you know, new age people uh, are against being judgmental <laughs> and against negativity? And, and the war, the, the war against neg- it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really judgmental about judgmental people. I'm really negative about negativity. You see, and people don't realize they're doing that yeah. and what a box they're putting themselves in. Right. And anyway, there's so much more I could say about this, but... but I'm just so honored and blessed that you you have joined us and are and are playing so fully with us and, and delivering so profoundly. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Well, I, I just want to, uh, I just want to uh, again say that what you're doing is so valuable for people and aggregating all these different people and uh, being so good at, at uh, having a conversation with each of them so that, so that people can learn from them. You're, mm. you're playing a, a very important role and people as I said earlier, are very, very lucky that they found you. Mm, thank you, Bill. I, I really appreciate that. And I, well, I sure love what I do. So, so um, you know, I'm, I'm an example of one of your success people because I, I 
am so blessed, so incredibly blessed to be doing that. So thank you, Bill Harris, for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for being part of this show, um, part of our community. Um, be, again, I just want to emphasize that because of your intentions, you have called forth this very material that Bill and I have shared with you today. And um, I'm just honored and privileged that you decided to take your valuable time and spend it with us. Um, we know you have a lot of choices, and we are so thrilled that you said yes and are joining us, even if it's for a little while, on your beautiful life adventure. Um, we love sh the sharing that we do in this community. Um, please share this with your friends. Please let people know. We want to get this material out there to as many people as possible. And uh, uh, we love you, and thank you, and good night, everyone. Uh, thank you, Bill. You bet. Thank you. And remember... If you'd like to join us for any of our live shows, just register absolutely free at hwtmpodcast.com. That's H-W-T-M, as in Healing with the Masters, podcast.com. Come and join us. Just register for the current live season. <laughs>